Are you recording now? Branch. 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 Branch out. A podcast from the Royal Botanic Gardens, Sydney. I'm John Foster, and uh, elder of the Darawal people. The Darawal people are Australian Aboriginal people from the coastal area of what we now know as the Sydney Basin. Born in La Perouse in the uh, on the mission there. La Perouse is a suburb in southeastern Sydney, and these missions were reserves of land set up in the 19th century by a mixture of the church and state to relocate and essentially evangelise Aboriginal people such as John. I can only remember one day from that, I was about two years old, and we was in the valley, down from my grandmother's place, and it was raining, and we was living in a tent in the, in the valley, and there was about three inches of water on the floor, and I was running around naked in the water. After his time at the mission in La Perouse, his family was moved to some housing in southwestern Sydney, and it was predominantly a white area. In fact, John and his siblings were the only Aboriginal children at his school. What a lot of people don't understand or realise is that discrimination can affect a child from a very early age. I remember living at uh, Herne Bay. One day they had uh, Vegemite sandwiches. And now I was only a little nipper at the time, probably about three years old. And I was given a Vegemite sandwich and they... As they gave the sandwich to me, they said, here, this will add colour to your cheeks. And they all roared out laughing. And I realised it was because black. And I've never eaten Vegemite since. Now, John was only about two or three years old. And he says he remembers that painful moment so clearly. All through school, I I copped a lot of discrimination uh, to the point where my brother, who was two years older than me, uh, he was going on to high school. He took me to St George Police Boys Club to learn how to fight and look after myself because he used to do all my fighting for me in primary school. Turns out John was quite the athlete and his success in boxing led to him playing and performing well at other sports such as hockey. Now, while the discrimination was cruel and is still raw to this day, he channelled it and turned it into something positive. I'd say discrimination was half of my education. Yeah. I learned so much from discrimination. That's made me the person that I am today. So who is that person John is today? He's a proud and resilient Aboriginal man and Darawal elder who has overcome all the odds to not only keep his Aboriginal heritage, identity and culture alive, he's inspired and empowered others. My family would never let me forget my background and the local community would never let me forget my background, my Aboriginal background. And I've always been a real proud Aboriginal man. And my education didn't start until my 40s when I did an art course. I got, got my art certificate. And that represented a trade certificate, which helped me get my job with CRS Australia. John channeled all his energy into working hard. And he was eventually able to save up and buy his own home with his wife. He also became an ambassador for Aboriginal people with disabilities and even addressed the United Nations. But most importantly, he has passed on his culture to his children, like his daughter Shannon. My name is Shannon Foster and I'm a local Sydney Dharawal woman. Um, I come from a long line of really amazing Aboriginal people from here in Sydney. 
Um, I'm very proud of my Sydney heritage and I um, am currently doing a PhD through the University of Technology in Sydney um, at the Centre for the Advancement of Indigenous Knowledges. And through my PhD work, I'm researching and documenting all of my family's histories and stories. You know, for so many generations, there's been no opportunities to have that voice. So the relief and the um, like, the cathartic process to see my elders tell their stories and just have them flood out and just talk as much as they need to, as much as they want, is really, really powerful. It's beautiful to see how close Shannon is with her father, John. And her and her partner and kids even live next door. I love to think about us. It's um, a really surreal moment when we sit in our backyard and Dad's playing the dig and we've got the clap sticks out and the kids are all clapping and my sister's singing. And it's amazing. You just stop for one second and you think we're in smack bang in the middle of Sydney, you know, on the outskirts of Bankstown, and we're basically we're having a corroboree. And it's just <laughs> amazing. <laughs> And who would have thought, you know, all those years later after my father grew up in a time and I grew up in a time when you were either completely and utterly abused for being Aboriginal or um, there was a complete and utter silence and erasure. So it's really amazing that now um, our voices get to be heard and we and we make sure they're heard right across the streets. <laughs> I always hoped and prayed that somebody would run with it when I retire and Shannon has done just that and in more than more than what I could expect from her and or hope or pray for <laughs> she, she's done a wonderful job but she's made me so proud I'm just so proud of the girl <laughs> love her <laughs> You're make, you guys are making me cry <laughs> being proud and passionate doesn't stop with Shannon either I had a beautiful experience last year through my um, child's preschool um, it wasn't even instigated by myself or anything, but um, just before the 26th of January came up, I like to wear my Aboriginal flag T-shirt as much as I can. And my little boy, who was four at the time, or three, not quite four, um, said, I want to wear my T-shirt, I want to wear my T-shirt. So he wore it to school just before the public holiday that was um, for the 26th of Jan. And the teachers there, um, they um, asked him about his flag and everything, and he knows all the colours and what they all mean. And so they set up a um, activity for him to share with his class what all the colours meant. The red for the earth, and the yellow for the sun, and the black for the people. Well done, darling. And should we make a flag together, guys? That was Shannon's son. And just to reiterate, he said, red is for the earth, yellow is for the sun, and black is for the people. It's really great now to be in this position, um, whether it's adults or it's very young children, to be able to teach people what an amazing cultural heritage, whether it's science, art, history, whatever it may be, it's amazing and it belongs to all of us. You know, we are all Australians, we're all living on this beautiful piece of land and we need to understand it from its perspective from thousands and thousands of years ago. Very quick introduction, my name is Kalkany. Uh, a really easy way to remember my name Kalkany is it rhymes with balcony. Kalkany is an Aboriginal education officer and she's leading a tour at the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney so people can learn about the traditional owners of the area. Blow into these leaves, you'll get a really nice whistle. Does anybody want to try it? Do one of you boys want to try it? Let's go. Can't all be great. We tell our children if they're lost in the bush um, to blow into these uh, these leaves here to scare snakes away. Do you think it scares snakes away? They probably get, they hurt their ears. Yeah. Hands their ears. Snakes don't have ears. Yeah. <laughs> snakes don't hear it. 
But if your parents are looking for you on the other side of the bush, then they know where you are because of this sound. That's cool, eh? I do. Now, Calcon isn't a Sydney local like John and Shannon. Her family ties are actually in far north Queensland. And her name, it means more than something that just rhymes with balcony. There are over 250 individual clan groups within Australia. My clan groups are the Gugul Yalanji, Kalkadoon, Pitta Pitta, Kanju, Yidinji, Gitame and Bulkaman peoples of far north Queensland. My, my father named me his first child, Kalkani. Um, it's my totem on my father's father's side from around a place called Tully because it's my grandfather's skin name. So you take your grandfather's, so, uh, mine is Wedgetailed Eagle, my father's, he takes his grandfather's skin name, which is Gayambola, which is the black cockatoo, to ensure that... In our family, we also pay respects to, to that side of my family and um, that is continued on with, you know, the generations to come. So in maybe two or three generations, somebody will be named Calcony to ensure that they know that connection to Mount Isa. That's a way better story than Balcony. Yeah. So even though she isn't from Sydney, Calcony's travelled around Australia and the world learning about the traditions, beliefs, food and other knowledge from other Aboriginal clan groups to inspire and educate people. So this one here is our Queensland black bean. But the bean pod or the seed pod is about as big as your hand, about as um, long as your hand, about as wide as your hand. That holds anywhere from one to about six beans. Those beans uh, sort of introduce us to our three Ds here in Australia. Death, diarrhoea, death by diarrhoea. (laughs) These beans here are edible, but you do need to prepare them. So with these ones here, you collect them, then you're going to slow roast them. When you slow roast them, that allows uh, all of the toxic oil to sweat out. Leave them in a river of running water to uh, get any uh, extra toxins out, maybe for about a day or two. Uh, Leave it in the river of running water, take them back out, and you can dry them out and then eat them after that. They're known to uh, lower high blood pressure and high cholesterol. You can hear Calcony is born to do this. And it seems to run in her family, because you might know her dad the hilarious comedian, Sean Chilborough. It's Sean Chilborough! Yes! Woo! Man, people say I got a good job, you know, they say, Sean, you got the best job, all you do, you travel around, make people laugh and that, you know? But my job is dangerous. Yeah, my job is dangerous, because sometimes when you walk out on stage, you might see like a beautiful woman out there, and you look at that beautiful woman, you go, wow, that's a beautiful woman. And men don't like it when you look at that woman. Men get jealous. Men will come up to you too, you're looking at my woman, you're looking at my woman, and they want to knock your head off. And men out there, if you're like me, you're just a little man who likes Zumba. Oh, my father, he's, um, he's the best man in the world. <laughs> like John inspired Shannon to be proud of her Aboriginal culture, Calcony's dad has clearly done the same. No matter what you think, your culture always comes first. You know, working in tourism now, I've realised that when people come to Australia, they don't want to see, you know, (laughs) they want to see the harbour, but they don't want to see what they can see back home. They want to see Indigenous culture. So um, if you retain as much as you can, that's where your wealth comes from. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to study at university. You don't have to have the highest paying job. You know, your wealth comes from within. And the traditions and beliefs of cultures around the world are predominantly passed down through the powerful art of storytelling. And I used to tell them stories mm. all the time, you know, Aboriginal stories when I were kids, mm. you know, going to bed of the mm. night. Oh, can I hear one? Got a, I've got a quick one I could okay. tell you, but I don't know if you wanted to tell one. Or... You, you, you tell, I I'll love... see how much you've learned. 
And it starts off with a, a little boy, he's a Darawal boy called Garrigan. And what a lot of people don't realise is that um, in Aboriginal culture you need to learn how to make string and weave and these are all knowledges that are shared as a child. Garrigan um, loved weaving and he loved making dilly bags, little tiny bags that you can put things in, hang them around your waist, or even big bags you can hang off the back of you and put your child in. And this particular day he's using lamandra, so this beautiful grass that is so useful in so many ways, very resistant. It's all throughout the Botanic Gardens, but you'll find it throughout Sydney everywhere. Some people call it RTA grass because it's on median strips everywhere. You can't kill it. It's tough as. And it's amazing. You get a little drink of water out of the base of it, the white um, piece that comes down the base. You can strip it and weave it. You can dry it out, you can make string, you can eat the roots of it, they're like tubers, like potatoes. And it lives right next to another beautiful plant called Dianella that is also all throughout here. And actually it's just finished burying and they grow around the waterways and Garrigan was sitting down there in his favourite little campsite. He was a person just like us, so soft, smooth skin, no big spines like the echidna, no big fangs like the red belly black snake. So he was really worried about the other animals, so he'd stay away from them. And he'd hide down in this little campsite, weave his lamandras, he'd eat the Dianella berries and have a lovely time on his own. One day he's down there and then he hears a noise in here through the bush and a bounding and a rustling in the leaves and then he realises oh, the other animals are coming what am I going to do and he starts to panic and then he realises he can hide inside the dilly bag he's been weaving. He takes a handful of Dianella berries with him and he hides in there and he munches on his Dianella berries and he waits for the other animals to go away and he waits and he waits and he waits and the other animals aren't going anywhere. They love Garrigan's campsite. It's perfect. It's beautiful Sydney country. Anyway, so it's days and days pass and Garrigan's run out of liquids. He can't drink anything. The, the berries are all gone. So he decides he's going to be brave. He's going to go out there and tell the other animals to go back to the bush because they're scaring him. So he tries to crawl out of the dilly bag. But he's been in there so long, the dilly bag's stuck to his skin. It's actually become the skin on his back, so he can't even stand up and walk anymore. He's got to crawl on his hands and his feet. And he crawls over to the other animals, and they look at this strange animal, this weird skin, thinking, who is this, this animal? We've never seen this before. And then he opens his mouth to speak. And his tongue has been stained by all the beautiful purpley colours of the Dianella berries. And as his tongue pops out, the other animals see this weird coloured tongue and think that he's poisonous and all go bounding and screeching, terrified back into the bush, leaving Garrigan alone there once again in his campsite to lay under the lamandra grass and have a lovely afternoon. Now, to this day, Garrigan is still there under the lamandra grass here in Sydney. So as you approach those low bushes, the Dianella and the lamandra in the schoolyard, in the bush, around the median strips, anywhere, you should always stomp three times. So that Garrigan knows that you're there. So that you don't scare him. And he doesn't scare oh you. Oh, you got me. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> Oh my gosh! <laughs> so tell us, Vanessa, what animal was created in that story? <laughs> Is it a blue tongue lizard? Yeah, it's a blue tongue lizard. <laughs> oh man, got me good. And not only are the stories beautifully entertaining, they're valuable lessons. There's no bunnings. I call it resources without retail. Yeah, well, how are you so going to survive that? And then with teenagers, how are you going to survive the apocalypse? Yep. This is survival in Sydney in Australia. Oh, my like, God, I wouldn't last a day. Yeah. Maybe, maybe one more day knowing about that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, we're back on the tour with Kelkany at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, and now she's showing us those vibrant purple berries from the Dianella plant. 
you know, the same berries that gave Garrigan his blue tongue in Shannon's story. Blueberries are considered superfoods. These are considered super duper foods. So if you eat about a handful of these a day, that is your daily intake. Anybody want to taste one? Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of our uh, berries or our fruits here in Australia, uh, because they're not packed full of um, sugar like the, uh, the fruit that you have in the supermarket, you'll find that they taste um, very mild. Now we're standing under the magnificent she-oak trees. The she-oak here are the casuarina pine are known as our babysitting trees. And the reason why we call them babysitting trees is because mm. if our children are lost in the bush, you would have told them, sit amongst these trees. The reason why we tell you that is because she drops these pine needles, and when she drops these pine needles, they form big hills around the tree. But you tell your child, sit amongst it or sit on top of it, now they're at eye level. It's very easy for you to spot them from a distance. Because of how thick these hills are, no other plants can push through. So it's sort of an open area, very easy for you to spot them. Say your child is the type of child that likes to wander off a lot, you're going to leave them there for a couple of hours or overnight. What you're going to tell them if they get a dry mouth or if they get thirsty is chew on these, uh, these pine cones here and it will rehydrate you. It doesn't rehydrate you, it just tricks your body into thinking that you're eating so that saliva travels back to your mouth, like, a, like chewing gum really. Mm, what a safe waiting place. And like many other plants, the she-oak has another interesting use for Aboriginal people from Gadigal country. So when the Gadigal women here first saw the English women, they loved their red cheeks. They wanted to mimic those red cheeks. So they collected the pine cones from the casuarina here. They crushed them to make a pink red rouge, put it on their cheeks to mimic those English mm. women. So this is sort of like an introduction to um, cosmetics. cosmetics. Yeah, <laughs> in Australia here. So, yeah, they're missing some blush. There you go. We've moved down towards the water now in Sydney Harbour, which is an area that Gadigal Aboriginal people utilise for hunting and fishing. Also, ceremonies. Take your baby over there. You would grab a piece of your own hair or a piece of string. Your left hand, you're going to wrap it, or that baby's left hand, wrap it around uh, the baby's pinky, the knuckle there, very tight. What happens? It doesn't fall off, does it? It falls off. Oh! Okay. The finger? The finger falls off. Uh, why? So, I'll give you the method to the madness later. Um, so when that pinky falls off, your mother then um, will grab it and throw it out to the water for the fish to eat. When that baby is about 13, 14, 15 years old, she'll become a fisherwoman for the clan. Just like she gave a piece of herself to the fish, the fish will do the same in return and give a piece of themselves back to her. By leaving a piece of yourself in this harbour, you know, you leave a bit of your energy there. So, you know, it's always going to call you back. Yeah, so it's essentially encouraging sustainability. But that doesn't mean that we should all start taking off our pinkies and throwing them in the water. There's another really practical reason for this tradition. Method behind the madness, the women here are hand and line fishers. So literally all they have is a hand, or their hand, a line and a hook on the end. So when you cast your line, because your pinky is so much shorter than the rest of your digits, that line has a tendency of getting caught on the end. When you reel that fish back in, again, because that, uh, that finger is a lot shorter, it has a tendency of slipping off the end. So if you cut that away, a pinky that you don't really need, it makes that cast nice and smooth, and then when you reel it back in, you have a little bit more leeway. See? It makes sense. Now, wait and see what Gadigal boys have to go through. You have a four-day ceremony. Before that four-day ceremony, you have four years of preparation. On the last day of their ceremony, one of their elders gets a rock and knocks their front left tooth out. Oh my God, ouch, ouch. 
But having your tooth knocked out isn't the only expectation for this coming-of-age practice. So when they're down there, um, as I said, it's, it's men's initiation. So only the men are around you, your, your, uh, your relatives, your male relatives. So immediately it shows them how strong you are. So keeping in mind, they've, they've basically trained you for four years. Um, and it would be very disrespectful to show any sort of pain during this process after they have trained you to become a man for four years. So you get that one tooth knocked out. If you do show any pain, another tooth gets knocked out. Yeah. I take the pinky (laughs) over that. Am I right? Now, before we judge or come to any conclusions, just know that initiation ceremonies like these aren't exclusive to catechal traditions. Okay, so Jewish people keep it pretty fun and festive with a bar mitzvah. And in Latin American cultures, there's the quinceanera with the beautiful dresses. But boys as young as 12 from a tribe in the Brazilian Amazon have to put on gloves containing painful bullet ants on their hands for 20 times for 10 minutes while doing a dance. That's no joke. Google it. Okay, yep, I'm getting sidetracked. Let's bring it back to the tour and the intricate catechal connection to the harbour. Have you ever heard of a midden? So basically just um, layers and layers of um, shell or remains from anything that you've hunted around here. It can look like a mound or a pit and each, each one is different. But at some sites, there have been so many deposits over multiple generations, they're a few metres deep. Let's say we all wanted oysters. We would first go over to the Shell Midden, see uh, what has been eaten last. If those oysters have been eaten last, then obviously we would all know, uh, don't hunt anymore. Give them some time to rebuild their population, hunt something else, lay it on top, telling everybody else. Sort of just that recycle or sustainable lifestyle. And there are even more than that. Middens also provide Aboriginal people today with an important link to their culture and their past, as does art. Art has always been a way that I've seen, I've watched my father express himself in his Aboriginality and culture. The biggest thing for me though is about um, expressing the Sydney style and expressing Sydney Aboriginal culture and art. Um, I've always sort of felt um, very sort of left out or excluded in that People will only recognise Aboriginal art as dots or as x-ray or, you know, top end or central desert sort of art and that sort of thing and those really quintessential kind of Aboriginal art styles and overlooked a Sydney art style, like that we have no culture here, that we have no art here, but we do. In fact, that typical dot style of Aboriginal art we all know so well only started in the 70s and it's a style that's kind of exclusive to desert areas of Australia. So what is the Sydney style? It's about leaving our mark on this place and so leaving a hand stencil print. So in cave art in here in Sydney around the shell middens and sandstone um, caves we would um, put our hand up and use a mouthful of ochre to spray around our hand and leave a stencil print of our hands and so I use those as part of it. I also incorporate country into my artwork so I'll go down and collect water out of the harbour and I'll collect sand and sandstone and dirt from around the waterways and and incorporate mud or grass or leaves or you know and I use watercolours to depict that Sydney is really a big floodplain. I'm just there as a as a tool <laughs> as a, a way for country to get onto that canvas. Shannon's passion and artistic talent even landed her the opportunity to create artwork for the City of Sydney for NAIDOC Week. Say Nabugumal, which was the Sydney um, City of Sydney work, is about friends and family and the handprints are of Aboriginal people living and working here in Sydney now today. And not just say, oh look, there's Aboriginal art, but look, that's my handprints in that. that that's my handprint, you know, so they can belong. Belonging is so important for all of us. 
but it's not always so easy for Aboriginal people like John and Shannon, who often get told things like, but you don't look Aboriginal, or you're only half. Mother was white, my father was black, but my brother and sister were black, but with white features, and I'm white, blue eyes, and Aboriginal features. Not all of us all look the same anymore, that we don't all have dark coloured skin, but black is about our culture. Black is about our people and about who we are. It's not necessarily just about the colour of your skin, that you can belong to a family, but not look like everybody in it. I'm always very patient with people and I always explain who I am and where I come from because I don't want people to think that necessarily this is like, you know, 20 generations back and I know nothing about my people, um, that this is right here, right now, and we are still going and we're here and we're prepared to teach and help people understand. Black is not a visual thing. It's, mm. a, it's, a, it's in your heart and it's in your mind. We're all family and we all belong here. Um, and it's called Sydney, it's called Waran, and this is who we are, the, the people of Waran. thank you to John and Shannon for taking time out of their day, coming down to the garden and sharing just a little piece of their story for this special episode of Branch Out. And of course, a huge thank you to Calcony as well for letting me tag along on her awesome tour. If you want to go on one of the Aboriginal Heritage Tours, just head to the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney's website and look under the What's On page. Guys, that was episode 15 of Branch Out. I want to say thank you to everyone from all around the world for regularly listening to the science, education and horticulture episodes. Branch Out's going on a little break, but in the meantime, check out those previous episodes, read the blogs on the story section of our website, or follow the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney on social media. Don't forget to send Branch Out to your family, your friends, your work colleagues, whoever it is, and hit that subscribe button and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and I produced this episode of Branch Out. Branch Out.